Thank you, Brother Dennis, for making that announcement about a sad one indeed, Sister Jewel passing away. I'd also like to make another announcement, if I might, at the outset of the lesson this morning. Admittedly, a much brighter note, in fact. You may be aware that we have, for the first time here at Pippin, formed a Bible Bowl team. I've been excited now for several months about participating in that event. And it will be September the 8th, which is now a bit less than a month away. Yesterday, there was a mini Bible Bowl competition in which our, one of our teams participated and took part in that. And we announced that on Wednesday night. It was at the Center Grove Congregation. I believe around 35, 36 teams, somewhere along in there at least. And our group came in fourth. We'd certainly like to extend a note of congratulations to them, the members of that team, Brooklyn Apple, uh, Lindsay as well, uh, Alyssa Stafford and uh, Madison were the four, and an alternate was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Hunter uh, participated as an alternate. So we want to let each of them know how appreciative we are of their efforts and their study. Again, coming in fourth in our first or inaugural event, taking part in that, we're certainly very proud of them. And we want them to know how much we appreciate and love the work that they're doing in terms of their studies. We know that there are many activities that can consume the, their opportunities and time, but they've chosen now for a couple of months at least to study these books of the New Testament, and we just want them to know how appreciative of them we are. And for their fourth place finish, they receive this plaque. We will display that prominently here in the building and uh, certainly something that they can be very, very proud of. Continue to think about them, if you would, as you uh, pray on their behalf that uh, that competition there on September 8th will be a productive and beneficial one. Most of all important, of course, the learning of the Word of God, the books of James through Jude. With that said this morning, might we also make note of our continuing series of lessons that we've been considering also on those same books. And as we make study of them, let us make note that the book of 1 John is the one that we have turned our attention to last Lord's Day. The title, in fact, of that lesson, as you might remember, had to do with the question or subject of fellowship with God. And we, in fact, noted very interestingly and carefully that that fellowship with God had to do with the following ideas. We learned that fellowship was through the basis of Christ. It was only through Him that we were able to share or enjoy fellowship with God. And what's more, that to sustain it required that you and I walk in the light as in fact Christ Jesus and God himself are both in that light. Day by day, what responsibility is ours to ensure that you and I are those who enjoy and lovingly are able to walk in fellowship with God, our Heavenly Father. We learned in the book of 1 John that some of the important words were love on the one hand, no on the other. We saw the importance in one respect last Lord's Day. Today we will look at it from a different perspective or angle. Because as I might note at the very bottom of that sheet, one of the facts about the book of 1 John that can on one hand be a bit puzzling is the fact that there are opposites so often emphasized in this book. And by opposites I mean factors which themselves seem to war against one another. For some that has led 1 John to be a rather difficult book to fully appreciate. 
But I believe as we wade through those two opposites this morning, we shall find that we can view them as John presents them in a way that encourages us to appreciate the strength of each one and to avoid one while at the same time we lift up and compliment the other. Well, that said, may I suggest we begin the lesson by identifying those opposites. What are they, and in what way might we understand and consider their significance? Would you think with me, if you would, about the following set of ideas? These opposites in the book of 1 John, the first one to be noted and so powerful and strong it is, God is the one, and note capital O, the one of perfect love. God in every respect is the very epitome, the clear example, the very essence of love. And over and over again, John emphasizes that point in the book of 1 John. Consider with me, if you would, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Especially, notice there he says, He that knoweth, who that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Immediately we encounter this three-word sentence, God is love. Emphasizing to you and me that God is the subject of that sentence, is is the verb, love is a predicate adjective. It identifies in perfect harmony and essence the fact that that is who and what God is. He is love. But not only that, we notice in the next verse it goes on to say the following. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We also notice that to say that God is love is not to take that statement far enough. For John quickly identifies God manifested that love, illustrated it, demonstrated it, showed it concretely. For he sent his only begotten son, and that son died for those that were unworthy, for those that did not deserve his sinless, guileless, precious blood, for those who in fact were sinners and were separated from him. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He didn't die for the Holy Spirit or for God. He died for you and for me. We were the ones in sin. We were the ones separated from Him. We were the ones without hope and lost. So many times the New Testament reminds us that that aspect and that ex exaltation of God's love is almost beyond the full bounds of you and I to fully appreciate, but we know it's there. How did Paul make that statement to the Romans in Romans chapter 5? Beginning in verse 6, he said, For when for the time that in our own strength Christ died for the ungodly? For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while you and I were his enemies, lost, hopeless, and those who are adversarial to him. Oh, what love. In addition to that, consider the text to be seen in other passages where that love is shown to us so remarkably and powerfully. Could we not remember the very text of 1 Peter 3, verse 18? On that occasion, 
Peter there, the inspired writer, expressly noted that the just died for the unjust. You and I were the ones unjust. We were the ones who, standing before the great judge of all, would be found unworthy of life, for in sin we were guilty. But Christ Jesus shed his blood that we might be pronounced justified. Oh, what love the Lord had for us, God the Father. But the very character of that love reminds us very powerfully that there's another opposite to be seen in this book. On the one hand, there is the God of perfect love. But on the other hand, how often does John make reference to the world and it's described in precisely the opposite terms. For example, consider these with me. In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, as was read in our hearing just a few moments ago, we remember on that occasion, love not the world. We've already noted that our love for God should be high and should be so strong and is that which is commanded. But now we're told not to love something. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And now note the final point in verse 17. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Isn't it an amazing thought then that some characteristics of the world, first, it's wicked. 1 John 5 verse 19 expressly says, The whole world lieth in wickedness. In addition to being wicked, it's temporary. It isn't age-lasting. It is not, in fact, permanent passes away with the usage and with the passing of time. We notice that on the one hand then, there's this God of perfect love. On the other hand, there's this world that is wicked and temporary and is not to be loved. We can already begin to see these opposites. What will these opposites lead us further to appreciate? I would suggest it leads to this question. Perhaps many of us have wrestled with this question through the years. Consider the way in which I've written it. I've tried to emphasize the very introductory thoughts of the lesson. How can man, who is the sinner, who now dwells in this world of devilish influences, live in harmony with God who is the one of perfect love? You and I live in this world under control of Satan, in fact surrounded by devilish influences and that which is evil and ungodly. And yet, we are expected, commanded, and ordered by the very God of heaven of love to live in a way of, in harmony with Him. We do, in fact, exhibit and face the opposites in a very strong fashion, don't we? Our mind has desire, if it's properly attuned, to serve the God of perfect love, but we live in a world under the control of the one who does not love God. How do you and I then safely journey through this life shunning the things we ought to shun in this world, and yet holding tried and true to that God of perfect love. I would suggest that John gives us the answers in this book. He identifies the means of accomplishing that. To see, in fact, how that develops, might we first emphasize that this is not an impossible request. Sometimes we may think in the world that there are those who ask of us that which cannot be done. Maybe a boss or a manager or a foreman seems to ask more than you and I can physically do. This is not impossible. We can live in this world surrounded by devilish influences and yet 
do so in harmony with that God of perfect love. Jesus said we could. Remember with me in John 16, verse 33, just hours before His crucifixion, in speaking to those apostles, Jesus said, In the world you shall have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Those were the statements of Jesus. I, He said, have overcome the world. And what's more, He promised to those apostles and through all those who trust and believe His word, the same powerful opportunity to accomplish the same. He has overcome the world. May we look in the book of 1 John and note how John quickly states for you and I to attach on ourselves to that same hope. In 1 John 4 verse 4, perhaps one of the key verses in the whole book, he says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. May we ponder on that just a moment? This world has its greatness in the sense that Satan is a powerful and mighty ruler over it. Of that there is no doubt. However, John said, He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. May we never forget that fact. When you and I have tied on to the Savior and live our lives walking in the light, following the beast of the Spirit, it is such that you and I have within us that which is stronger, powerful, and more mighty than is that which is in the world. As far as overcoming it, one chapter later, 1 John 5, verse 4, may we also not forget, faith is that victory that overcometh the world. That life of faith, that individual who walks in the light and directs his paths in accordance to the revealed will of God, knows that that which is in him is greater than that which is in the world. And that victory that overcomes the world is exemplified, manifested, and appreciated in our faith. That immediately reminds us then that that person who has no faith, that individual who has never opened the pages of the Word, for indeed faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, that individual ignorant of the blessed teachings of the Scriptures and thus is without faith, the world is stronger than he. That world is more powerful and more mighty than he and will overwhelm him or her. But that person, again knowledgeable of the scriptures, with a developed faith that grows in its maturity, is that person who is thus able to overcome the world through the blessed teachings and promises contained therein. But John isn't nearly finished. For by beginning at that point, he quickly leads us to note some of the following. Would you read with me 1 John 3, verse 10? In the midst of the book, 1 John 3, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And in 1 John 5, verse 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. How do you and I so live and conduct ourselves that the devil is unable to touch us? Note the final wording of verse 18 of chapter 5. Isn't that a powerful thought to so live in a way that the devil can't touch you? How did John say it's possible? That person who exemplifies and lives righteously, but in chapter 3 verse 10... The commandments of God are the fundamental aspect of that. To be in a position that the devil can't touch you. 
you may have heard me use the illustration more than once, but it does seem so appropriate in light of this passage as well as others. The devil may well be viewed as a ferocious and fierce mad dog. As long as that dog is tied, and you and I do not wander within the confines of the chain length, the dog can't bother you. He can't touch you. He has no opportunity to reach where you are. And so it is with us. The devil cannot touch those protected under the umbrella coverage of the blessed blood of Christ and who live in harmony righteously in accordance to his will. Throughout the book of 1 John, that idea is so powerfully emphasized that we can't miss it. To see more clearly about the nature of it, let us discuss righteous living for the next little bit of our lesson this morning. What does it mean to live righteously? May I suggest to you that John also uses that word on many occasions, and it's filled with such meaning. May we begin in the following way. Righteous living. I've identified on the screen now before you that that righteous living begins with a love for God. That is the very basic starting point. Let us look at some of the ideas to help emphasize that point. First, we might do well to define love. That may seem unneeded and unnecessary. Don't we all know what it means to love? Haven't we been so blessed by the love of a wife or the love of a husband or the love of our children or the love of our parents? Well, indeed, we do seem to know in many ways what it means to love. But I would suggest to you, too, that sometimes you and I use the word love very differently. For example, that person may say, I love my wife. Perhaps two sentences later, I love ice cream. I love my Honda car. Now question, do I love ice cream the same way I love my wife? I know she hopes not. Do I love her the same way I love my car? Again, I know she trusts not. And you and I know full well that we're employing the word love in different senses. Sometimes you and I use then the word love with so many different objects. They may be animate, they may be inanimate. They may be rather physical, temporary, and admittedly trivial. Or they may be profound and deep and ultimately exceedingly significant. I've defined for you the way that the word agape, that word love, as so often used by John, is defined. It means to be loyal to, to regard highly based on evaluation and choice. It means to present the idea of affectionate reverence, prompt obedience, and grateful recognition of benefits received. And that's according to the scholar Thayer. Now, upon consideration of that, we can now easily see that ice cream and my wife is far different objects. I don't profess loyalty to ice cream. I don't have an obedience and character and grateful recognition to ice cream. But with regard to love and with regard to the character of evaluation and choice, we can now see that this kind of love discussed by John is a mental choice on my part. I love God because I choose to and thus bring upon myself all that he demands if I do love him as illustration and proof of that love. To love God then takes us a step further. How do I show it? Well, let us let John illustrate it for us. 1 John 5 verse 3. This is the love of God 
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. We have now encountered a rather profound expression. John says this is the love of God. Now he doesn't mean that's the way God loves. This is our love for him. We keep his commandments. And what's more, his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They are not that which is overly oppressive to us. What's more, in 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5, we notice again that an idea similar to this one is represented. And it's done so in such strong language. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Notice the next text. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. You see, we have thus arrived at an inescapable conclusion. That one who loves God will invariably keep his commandments. For John says they are one and the same. You can't love God and not do what he says. That's not loving him. In fact, John even said that person who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The person is not telling the truth. It is a rather resounding fact that then when you and I deceive ourselves by making excuse for not keeping God's commandments, or when we encounter those whom we know, perhaps co-workers or neighbors, and we ask them about a text and they say, well, I love God, but I don't believe that. They're deceiving themselves. They have, in fact, described themselves as a liar based on this text. It is an inescapable conclusion, isn't it, that then that love of God that we said is the foundational beginning element for living righteously, that love is illustrated, shown, and in fact natural in that it is the obedience to His commandments. I've listed one final thought there at the bottom of that page. You and I, as we describe our love for God, may we never forget in light of what we learned earlier. He loved us first. We love Him because He loved us first. 1 John 4, 19. God loved you and me when we were His enemies. Apart from Him in sin, those who in fact had not made usage of his, the blood of His Son, He still loved me. And what's more, He loves that person who is a murderer. That person who has committed sinful matters of sexual affairs, who is engaged in activities, God still loves that person, and Christ's blood was still shed for him or her. Now, in their response to that love, they must repent. They must do that which God has commanded and ordered in order to contact that blood and forgive the sin, but he still loves them. May we appreciate then that that leads directly to the next point in our lesson. Love for God? What about love for others? Is in the reading of the five chapters of 1 John, it is again easily noted that John emphasizes love for each other. In what way does he do that? I've listed a whole grouping of texts. We won't read all of them. I would ask that you would read 1 John 4 verse 7 with me. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. We can easily see then that that love for God must exhibit itself in love for one another, in love for brethren, 
In fact, of that listing, look with me at one other passage. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. As John wrote this epistle of 1 John, directing it to the given individuals who had been overcome by this thought of special knowledge and Gnostic ideas, he brings it back down to the very basic ground level, doesn't he? You love God by keeping His commandments. And furthermore, as you live righteously, you must illustrate or show that love to each other. Jesus had stated before He, in fact, was crucified in John chapter 13, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one for another. John 13, verses 34 and 35. And one chapter later, and then again in chapter 15, he even made note that we are to love as, in fact, he loved us. Well, let us expound upon that idea a bit further using the book of 1 John as our guide this time. In chapter 3 particularly, note with me that verses 16, 17, and 18 read as follows. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Oh, the marvelous nature and character of the fact that you and I, having a heart of compassion, a heart of concern and care, how can you and I claim to have the love of God when we see a brother or sister in need, that is, in physical need, and you and I are able to at least address in part that need, and we willfully choose not to do it. Perhaps they're in need of food or shelter or water, clothing, you name it and we willfully withhold from them that physical blessing. Again, John asks, How dwelleth the love of God in him? If you and I refuse to do that, seeing very well that Christ gave all his entire life for me, illustrating his love, and I'm not willing to go to that minor extent to aid that brother or sister in need, does the love of God dwell in me? The rhetorical answer is, of course, no. Doesn't that challenge us to ever recognize that the love that God and Christ had for me challenges you and I to love one another and to do so by meeting benevolent physical needs when that's appropriate and needful? May we also notice in that same particular verse, especially verse number 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's indeed a rather challenging text, wouldn't you agree? John's point is this. Lord Christ Jesus willfully gave his life physically for you and me. He gave it all. John reaches this conclusion, therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What John is saying is thus, if that time were to arise when out of a sense of needful duty, where it would greatly benefit that brother or sister, I ought to be willing to give my life for that person. That's a hard saying. You and I enjoy our life here in the flesh. All of us do. We appreciate the physical blessings and temporal and character God has given us, and yet 
out of the epitome of that love, John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Oh, how thankful we can be for those, for instance, like some of our missionaries that you and I may know, who in going overseas, they do risk their lives. Some of them have even given their life. Now, not to satisfy the physical needs of those present, but their spiritual ones, those needs that they have to come and to know the gospel. One of the last thoughts I shared with you on that particular sheet, you and I maybe can see that we can't take that too far. There are some who perhaps have tried to cause us to feel guilty. Perhaps someone says, well, if you love me, you'll give me this. Now, let's be realistic about that. Is that really true? Consider a parent. Sometimes a child will say, I want this. I'd like to have that. Dad, if you love me, you'll get it for me. When due to the experience of the adult and the knowledge of what that involves and entails and no doubt what the future would hold if that were to come to pass, the father says no. Well, the love is still there. But the better decision was rendered. Just because someone asks, if they're able by their own capability to provide, we are not a welfare agency. The church just doesn't pass out funding because we have it. Our job is to do the work of God and His will. Thus, we appreciate that when there are legitimate needs, we share those, take advantage, and make usage of what God has blessed us with. But thus to love God, to love one another, does lead us to perhaps a final point in the lesson this morning. John quickly makes note of the following as we consider the world is not going to react very pleasurably to this godly living. I would ask that you briefly consider with me how the world will react invariably. In 1 John 3 verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The decisions that you and I make in pursuit of God's will, the things that we strive to do in light of walking in the light, the world in many instances will not appreciate. And in fact, the language is even stronger in 1 John 3 verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because the world knew him not. I think it's safe to say that we each enjoy being known. We want others to appreciate the stance we take, but here John very clearly says the world does not know Christianity. The world's not going to appreciate the stance of why you don't drink, why you don't smoke, why you and I choose not to dance and play the lottery and things like that. They just don't understand because they didn't know the Lord and they don't know us. But yet, you and I know very well the choices we've made and the stance of the scriptures on which we've made them. Consider yet another text in 1 John 4, verse 5. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are two choices, John said. There's truth and there's error. The world doesn't appreciate the truth. It is opposed to it and unable to receive it because it doesn't understand it. 
you and I, on the other hand, as those who pursue truth, know very well the greatness of that truth, the eternal promises it contains, and we stand squarely on that truth, though the world doesn't know us and though, though the world doesn't appreciate it. May we quickly note then how blessed that righteous living is. Having been warned that the world will not gladly accept it, isn't it comforting to know how blessed we are when we do live and walk in that truth? When we do enjoy that fellowship with God, John emphasizes the power of prayer in 1 John 3, verse 22. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. In 1 John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. What a privilege it is to have fellowship with God. For those prayers that you and I utter, we know they go far beyond the ceiling of the building. They, in fact, reverberate in the halls of heaven, Revelation 8, verses 4 and 5, and come up as sweet incense before the greatness of God's presence. Fellowship with God, as we've seen today, the command to love God but not to love the world. The question then comes, what about my life and yours? Are we living it righteously? Are we so conducting ourselves to where the things we've learned today describe our life? Remember, we are liars if we claim to love God but yet do not do what He says. In humble and faithful, submissive obedience, our response needs to be the same as Saul's was on that road to Damascus in Acts 9 verse 6. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Or what was it Isaiah declared in Isaiah 6 verse 8? Here am I, send me. Or those famous words in 1 Samuel 3, verse 9, Lord, thy servant heareth. Do you hear the Lord today? Are you letting his words of his scriptures fall sincerely upon your heart? If you've never obeyed the gospel and become a child of God, remember the world won't understand many of the aspects of that. But oh, what promises come along with it. Believe in Jesus today. Repent of your sins. Confess his sweet name as your Savior. Be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. If we could assist you in that, the baptismal waters are warm. All things are prepared and ready. You could become a Christian, a member of the Lord's body in about a few moments. If you have become a Christian in former days, but have not lived faithfully to that calling, you've allowed Satan, you've walked within the confines of the chain of the mad dog, Remove yourself at once from that location. Go outside that and exist in the beautiful realm of safety to be found in Christ. He has overcome the world, and through faith, you and I can do the same. If we could assist you this morning in your obedience to the blessed gospel, we'd be happy to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.